You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. We're now on episode 16 of Understanding God's Righteousness and this episode is called Why is the head shaved in the separation to and from Nazarite? So why does God emphasise the head in so many rituals throughout both the law of the First Kingdom Age and the Ecclesial Age? Why is the combination of death and life emphasised in atonement rituals And why is the progression always death before life? These questions and more are dealt with by Brother Jim in this wonderful series and episode 16. God bless. In our previous class, the primary theme was the divine principle of separation. The key focus is recognizing both separation requirements that are so powerfully presented in the law of the Nazarite, both a separation to and a separation from. We've noted how the Nazarite's four separation from requirements in order to separate to God in this voluntary vow were all reversed in the laws of the rituals and the rituals of the ecclesial age. However, the identification with the high priest during that first kingdom age, through those four abstinence requirements, constituted an identification with our new high priest in the rituals of the ecclesial age, despite being reversed. We were concentrating on the emphasis on the head, on the head, recognizing how the uncut hair of the Nazarite man or woman was identified as the head of their consecration. However, If the Nazarite was defiled by the touch of death before the conclusion of the term of their vow, they had to have their hair, the hair on their head on the seventh day, shaved and simply dispose of it. But at the conclusion of their vow, the head was also shaved and that hair was placed in a position of prominence into the fire on the Christ altar of burnt offering as kindling for the peace offering. And then the Nazarite would be invited to partake of wine, which had been forbidden during the term of their vow. We saw this differential in the hair shaved from the head, and we asked, why? So we considered a pattern in this head shaving in the ritual of the atonement for the healed leper, the ordination ritual for the Levites, and the process for taking a bride captured in war. We also noted a subtle pattern with the removal of the skin of the whole burnt offering that was given to the officiating priest. All that hair removed from the body of the bullock or the sheep or the goat and awarded as a gift to the officiating priest. But if the burnt offering were a bird, the counterpart to that removed skin would be all those feathers of the bird that were cropped off. But those feathers were simply discarded into the ash pile on the east side of the Christ altar of burnt offering. There's a distinct difference 
in the procedures between the animal skin and the foul feathers, each of the burnt offering. One can also note the differences between the bird components as opposed to the beast components in the covenant ritual between God and Abram in Genesis 15. The three three-year-old beasts were to be cleaved in two and placed in two parallel rows. Those two fowl of heaven were to be left whole, but also placed in those two parallel rows of now four components each, making a total of eight covenant ritual components, paralleling so many other rituals where eight is highlighted with a greater significance than the number seven. It is this combining of earthly beast sacrificial animals and the fowl of heaven sacrificial birds that present this blending of earth and heaven, which is the whole plan of God, shadow projected from that covenant ritual performed by Abram. So, we have this differential in what's done with the Nazarite hair, similar to the differential between the skin of the burnt offering as opposed to the feathers of the burnt offering. That hair was a physical representation or the symbol of the Nazarite ritual of separation to and from, this consecration of the head of the Nazarite, this emulation of the crown of the high priest. That differential is that when the vow term is completed, that hair is used as a powerful component of the final ritual stage, which concludes with the Nazarite consuming the previously forbidden wine. Yet in the eight-day restoration of a death-defiled Nazarite, that hair is shaved and simply discarded. These two different hair procedures also highlight those two separation distinctions in this ritual. It's all about separating from in order to separate to. In that vow disruption procedure, the shaved hair is simply separated from, being discarded, similar to those feathers of the bird burnt offering, discarded quite appropriately on the east side of the altar, along with the ashes of the altar offerings, as east is the direction away from God while west is the direction to God all through scripture. The earthly animal skin has value. It's retained by the officiating priest. The feathers of the fowl of heaven have no value and must be discarded. Yet the opposite equation is presented in the heaven and earth covenant with Abram, with the earthly animals being cleaved, but the fowl of heaven left whole. Again, the issue appears to be the necessity for both components of a single principle being promoted. If the issue is separation, then there must be a separation from as well as a separation to for that harmonious blending of earth and heaven. If the principle is atonement, there has to be a combination of both the lesson of the burnt offering and the lesson of the sin offering. There is a rejection as well as an affirmation. This particular challenge is the issue that is undermining the understandings of the current enlightened community, the oversimplification of divine principles into a single focus 
that automatically creates an inappropriate imbalance, like that focus on unity as opposed to harmony, like the insistence that atonement is exclusively about forgiveness, and like how sin is oversimplified into exclusively transgressions, imposing a guilt that requires a repentance, and like how only imputed righteousness is a component of salvation, and like the imbalancing of love, equating the love of people above the love of God, and imbalancing the truth and love equation, inappropriately elevating love above truth. We're developing a foundational understanding of the divine principles of separation and harmony so that we can effectively apply the correct balancing of these principles in our lives at this time, in this last generation of the ecclesial age, just before a new transition into the next stage of the Creator's plan. But before we consider that final ritual at the conclusion of the term of that voluntary Nazarite vow of separating to and separating from, that identification with the high priest, let's just think about why. It's the hair on the head that has to be shaved. Why is the head? Why is it the head that identifies that consecrated saint, that physical holiness status of the Nazarite? Well, let's just note some significant issues in relation to the creational design features of the head of a person or an animal the head is the seat of authority and therefore also responsibility. This is why the Bible refers to blood guilt being upon one's head. As David declared to the Amalekite bringing Saul's crown to him at Ziklag, who had claimed to have personally performed a mercy killing of Saul. We think with our minds, our brains, <laughs> at least we're supposed to. Society has a very different suggestion that we must think with our hearts and not our brains, that we should be obedient to our first instincts without rethinking our response to a situation or a temptation. No matter what form of entertainment we experience today, music, books, movies, television, stage performances, YouTube, politics, whatever, the invariable message is to always listen to your heart and to go with your first instincts, what is also commonly referred to as our gut instincts. But God did not instruct the Nazarite to shave his chest or their stomach, that hair by the heart or the gut. It was not even a shaving of the hair of the entire body, just the head. Our pursuit of an identification with our high priest in this dispensation identifies Christ as the head of the ecclesial body. This is the part of Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul's reasoning in promoting harmony within the ecclesia, explaining that every part of the body is necessary for the whole body to function properly. Therefore, let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll pick up at verse 15. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, 
I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now as God set the members, has God set the members, every one of them in the body as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body? And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head of the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body. But the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, the, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Now, now let's first observe that Paul's exhortation here is for harmony, and definitely not mere unity. This is not about a bunch of body parts thrown into a pile. This is about a body dependent on the harmonious cooperation of each separate component. Agreement of purpose and action, not just toleration, as toleration is all that's required for mere unity. The foot supplies its avenue of service to the body, as do the eyes and ears and lungs, and heart, and digestion, and waste removal. I, I have a very intimate knowledge of the danger to the body due to the incapacity to separate waste from one's body. I have, I've endured six major abdominal surgeries over the last 25 years. We are the body, but Christ is the head, to which we, as the body components, are supposed to obediently operate for the benefit of the whole body. Sometimes that involves separating from, just as it involves separating to. Just as we ingest food, we also eliminate waste. Christ is defined as the head of the body. There is uh, always one practice that is required before an animal's sacrifice, or I guess we should say um, simultaneously with the killing of the animal, and that is placing one's hand on the head of the animal. Uh, we see this in Leviticus 1, reference to the burnt offering. It says, He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation of the Lord, and shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted to him to make an atonement for him, and he shall kill the bullock before the Lord and before the, and the priests. We can continue in Leviticus chapter 3. Uh, and if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offered of the herd, whether it be male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. 
Well, we can go on and on on this one issue. Leviticus 4. If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin which he has sinned a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord. This was true for all the sin offering categories, with the exception of the birds, and of course the ephah of flour. Um, but this was also the procedure for the ordination of the priesthood. Aaron and his sons placed their hands on the head of the bullock sin offering, and the ram burnt offering, and the ram of consecration, which was the peace offering. This was also true for the ordination ritual of the Levites, who had to place their hands on the head of the burnt offering, and then the sin offering, that together would provide them with the necessary atonement. It was a little different for the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, as that goat lived. And both of the hands of the high priest were placed on the head of the scapegoat, and the goat was released into the wilderness. We read Leviticus 16, verse 21, And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions in all their sins, and putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now, I think we can see the extreme emphasis God is placing on this identification with the head in ritual after ritual. But while we're here with the scapegoat on the David Tumman, let's note that dual hands on the head of the scapegoat, with the dual emphasis of both life and death, with these two goats on the Day of Atonement, in order to provide an atonement. In Leviticus 16, we read, uh, And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell shall be the scapegoat, and shall be presented live before the Lord to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all of their transgressions, and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all the iniquities, their iniquities, unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. So, despite the first goat being sacrificed as a sin offering to God, and its blood for that sin offering actually being taken into the most holy chamber on that third visit on the Day of Atonement, for the atonement of the rest of the nation, we still have this living goat identified as having the sins of that nation placed on the head of that living animal through the hands of the high priest in order for an atonement to be achieved on behalf of the nation. 
This demonstrates the combination of both death and life being required for the benefit of an atonement. And this is not some kind of exclusive application. This is the same life and death pattern demonstrated on the Day of Atonement as was demonstrated for the cleansing of the healed leper. In Leviticus 14, we read, starting in verse 4, Then shall the priest command to take for him, meaning the leper that had been cleansed, for him that is to be cleansed, two birds alive and clean, and cedarwood and scarlet and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. And as for the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and shall dip them in the living bird uh, in, and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. Similar to the Day of Atonement, uh, where we have a goat that dies and a goat that lives and is released. So with the cleansing of the healed leper, we have two birds. One dies and one lives and is released. Now, there is a tremendous volume of value in the consideration of these two birds in the leper cleansing ritual. But we're only going to note a couple of issues. First, we have this same pattern as the Day of Atonement. Not only the combination of the dead and living and set-free animal, but that death precedes life. The death of the first bird precedes the release of the living bird. The first goat dies, preceding the release of the goat that lives. The goat has the transgressions of the nation assigned to it through the high priest, placing his two hands on the head of the animal before its release. In the leper atonement ritual, the living bird is dipped into the dead bird's red blood, along with red cedar, red cloth, and hyssop, which is not necessarily red, with that blood being spattered onto the healed leper, and then the bird is released. We should recall how that same cedar, scarlet, and hyssop are also combined with the blood in the ritual of the red heifer. There is some valuable associations for everyone's future meditations, but for now, let's consider that combination of death and life, affording that atonement for the entire nation on the Day of Atonement, as well as the atonement for the healed leper. Once again, the great challenge in our pursuit for understanding our Creator's righteousness is the tripping stone of oversimplification. We have to understand things are always more complex than our heart-generated instincts would like to accommodate. In order for us to participate in that eternal atonement, salvation, inheriting immortality, we need to respect both of these issues of death and life. And we need to get the order correct, death before life. We're going to go back to the same verse in Romans 5 and 10 that we've noted in innumerable times in the past, which says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall 
be saved by his life. Reconciliation to God was achieved in the past through the sacrificial death of Jesus, like that first bird and that first goat. Salvation is in the future and on the basis of Christ's life, his resurrection to immortality, like the blood-soaked living bird set free and the living goat carrying the transgressions of the enlightened community into a land not inhabited. Well, <clears throat> while all four of our ecclesial age rituals also have a dual emphasis, two of them particularly embrace this same dual death and life identification, as well as the uh, progression from death to life, just like the birds for the leper and the goats for the atonement of the nation. The two ecclesial age rituals that do not, of course, are the two gender-based rituals of silence and head coverings. Brothers must speak and sisters cannot. Sisters must wear head coverings during any prayers or prophesying as the law requires. Uh, of course, prophesying during those first two generations of the ecclesial age when both brothers and sisters were able to prophesy. And of course, brethren are absolutely forbidden to wear head coverings during those same two activities. But baptism and memorial service both demonstrate the same dual emphasis of the leper's birds and the nation's goats in the pursuit of atonement. The two baptism stages are the burial with Christ in the baptismal waters, joining him in his sacrificial death, like the death of that first bird and the death of the first goat and then rising up out of the watery baptismal grave to breathe again, projecting our resurrection to immortality, seen in the living bird and the living goat that are each given freedom. Now, I recognize we are repeatedly instructed to identify the two components of the memorial service with the death of Jesus, the unleavened bread representing his sin-cursed but transgression-free body, where the power of sin was broken in his death, and then the wine representing his sacrificial blood that confirms the covenant. We're clearly told by Paul that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we show the Lord's death till he comes. But we do see that hint of life in the progression of partaking of the broken bread before the wine. This death and life identification with the bread and wine is highlighted in the baker and butler dreams Joseph interprets. The baker of breads would die in three days. The butler would be exalted to the right hand of power to serve Pharaoh's wine. The butler was Pharaoh's sommelier, his wine steward, or more accurately, his wine taster to protect Pharaoh from an assassination through wine poisoning. The baker of breads dies on that third day. The wine steward lives and is exalted to the right hand of power on the third day. Therefore, we can see the combination of death and life in the memorial bread and wine in the pursuit of atonement, just like the other shadow patterns of the birds and the goats. The point here is the necessity for both of these issues of death and life 
in our pursuit of atonement. The current problem is a growing disrespect for the death component of this equation. This surfaces in a number of ways in our enlightened community, often with an exclusive emphasis on the resurrection of Christ, but also with the presumption that death was not introduced after or as a direct result of the sin of Adam and Eve, but, but was part of the original creation order, and also in the growing problem of misunderstanding the way Jesus bore sin at his crucifixion, such as the problem of, of substitution as opposed to representation. These issues are usually related to the minimalization of the principle of sin as being nothing more than transgressions, guilty transgressions. Our point in recognizing the combination of the dead uh, and living goat and the dead and living bird is the same point we recognized in baptism and memorial service. We need to understand God's righteousness in both the death of our Savior as well as his resurrection to immortality. As another example of mistaking this feature of our Creator's righteousness would be the paganized Christianity doctrine of the immortality of the soul and their perverted concept of salvation. That pagan doctrine of inherent immortality eliminates the judgment of death insisting the serpent's contradictory testimony was actually right, that we don't really die, and certainly not due to contradicting God's righteousness. Their concept of salvation is an uncovering, not an atonement, which is a covering. The supposedly immortal consciousness is released upon the death of the body. It's uncovered and dispatched to either heavenly bliss or to be tortured eternally. They make the death of Jesus as being nothing but a fake show, insisting he was immortal in the first place, and there was no life sacrifice at all. When we truly understand the terms of our Creator's righteousness, those terms will be confirmed over and over and over from every direction, three-dimensionally. So our initial point of contact with this living goat on the Day of Atonement was its common point of having hands placed on the head of that animal, assigning the transgressions of the enlightened community to the head of that animal that lived, like the single hand on the head of the sacrificial animals that were killed by the offering party, as their hand rested on that head. So, why the head? Why not place that hand over the heart, like in the Pledge of Allegiance? The head is the body's seat of authority and responsibility. The head controls the body and controls the mouth, directs our movement, choosing our direction. It is for this reason that the head is also the point on the body that represents responsibility. Scripture repeatedly talks about guilt in the sense of blood being upon one's head. The high priest is expressed as placing the transgressions of the enlightened community on the head of the scapegoat by placing his hands on the head of the animal. The spies tell Rahab at Jericho that if anyone leaves her house 
during that battle at Jericho, the fault for their death will be counted as blood guilt on their own heads. But if they die inside that house of protection, then the blood guilt of their death would be on the heads of those two spies. David declares the blood of the death of the Amalekite messenger to Ziklag was on his own head. This was the messenger bringing him the crown of Saul and explaining he supposedly performed a mercy killing on Saul. David commanded one of his men to execute the Amalekite messenger, saying, Your blood be upon your own head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. More than any generation preceding us, we should have the ability to think with our heads as opposed to our hearts. We have been given tremendous gifts in this last generation of the ecclesial age, the capacity to quickly find scriptural answers and parallels with computerized search engines, instantly uncovering every scriptural use of a single Hebrew or Greek word, no, no matter how it's translated, being able to compare more than 50 different Bible translations just by clicking through them at the same exact reference, instantly accessing a variety of Bible dictionaries and commentaries generated both from within the enlightened community and by the paganized Christianity commentators, if one, if one is actually interested in what they have to say. Like no generation ever before us, we have the capacity to hear creation's parallel testimony to the Bible for confirming the terms of our Creator's righteousness. We have the benefit of the greatest level of scientific knowledge which is really just a study of the physical components and operating structure of creation, or what is more often so disrespectfully referred to as simply nature. We know, at least we should know, that the features, structure, and operational rules of the universe are actually expressions of spiritual truths. We know the atomic structure of elements are expressions of divine truths and principles. We know the purpose of the clouds and rain and bodies of water and how the agricultural process confirms scriptural truths as they're quoted all throughout scripture. These are the terms of our greater's righteousness. We enjoy greater gifts for understanding God's righteousness than any generation preceding us. Our responsibility is therefore very great. Because as we know, to whom much is given, much will be required. It is the hair issuing from the head, the top of our head, and the bottom of our head, and the, the beards, even the eyebrows on our faces, that had to be shaved off and either discarded or included as a significant component of the final Nazarite ritual stage of separation too. We're supposed to think with our brains, predominantly, not exclusively. Our hearts can be valuable in the thought process, but only if the heart or emotionally generated thoughts are subservient to the brain, meaning a circumcised heart, a heart from which a part has been separated from by that razor-sharp, two-edged sword of truth. Our next consideration is going to take some time to develop and address. 
and this will be the headships and related authority levels in the ecclesial age ritual dealing with the head. Therefore, we'll have to leave this um, aspect of these considerations to next week. Um, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.